Welcome to episode 31 of the Fit for Golf podcast. I'm joined by World Long Drive professional Martin Borgmeier. In the past five years, Martin has increased his club head speed from the mid 120s to high 150 mile per hour and set a ball speed world record of 231 miles per hour. He has a very good understanding of the golf swing, physical training, and how to drive the golf ball further and straighter. If you are interested in gaining speed and distance, I think you will like this episode. You should also check out Martin's Instagram page. We give the handle later in the episode. He posts educational videos almost daily, and they are of very high quality, very useful. Just before we get started, a reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. Golfers of all ages and all standards are making huge strides in their golf performance, fitness, and health. There are programs to suit everyone, and there is an abundance of material, whether you are working out at home or in the gym. Visit fitforgolf.blog forward slash app to find out more. You can get 20% off a 12-month subscription with the code FFGPOD. Now to Martin Borgmeier. Martin Borgmeier, thank you very much for joining me. How are you doing this morning? Thanks for having me, Mike. It's amazing. I'm in Dallas right now, so life can be worse. Very nice. That's good. You just told me you've got some competitions coming up. Yeah. So actually, the season just started. We have a competition coming up in May. And then, well, eventually, it's all about the World Championship in October. So I'm actually preparing my season to get to that point to be the fastest I can. Excellent. Can you please tell us about your sporting and education background? I'd like to know what you were doing before Long Drive. Oh, wow. That's a long story. I try to keep it short. So because my, my life has been a little different than most like professional athletes' lives because I was working in IT project sales for eight years in total. So I was working for an enterprise. I do have a bachelor's degree in business administration, a master's degree in business psychology. And at some point when I was playing golf with my colleagues and clients back in the days, well, because I was moving away from golf. I played golf as a junior from like 9 through 16. I was uh, fairly okay um, on a German level, which is not the highest in the world, but I was fairly okay. Always hit the ball kind of far, but uh, then, well, went different ways, played basketball for some time, completely changed my, well, athletic side of things and went to the gym, started working out, tried to jump higher and all the stuff you need for basketball. And w once I got back to golf, like that combination of technique from the old days and, well, the new strength or explosiveness gained was a good combination for long drive. And, well, these people that I was playing golf with taught me to try and long drive. And that was in 2017. And, well, I did pretty well at my first competition. I just did it for fun. And then, yeah, I was working my ass off to get better and eventually made it out to the U.S. And now I'm playing the world tour. Well, that's amazing. That's not even that long ago, 2017. I thought you would have said yeah. it was much earlier that you started focusing on that. What type of club head speed and ball speed were you at before you started focusing on long drive and where are you at now so people can have a little bit of an idea? Yeah. So, um, I to be honest, I, I do one day of my numbers because back in the days, I didn't even have an idea about club speed, ball speed. I didn't even know what those numbers mean, right? So, I know one day that I was hitting on a trackman, and I was mid-120s, mid-180s ball speed. So that, that was, was that? like the starting point. That was in 2016. So you'd done some already of like your gym training for basketball, getting stronger and more explosive. 
Yeah, I mean, my when I look at my swing from back in the old days, my my swing was half as long as it is today, right? Because I was trying to play golf. I was not educated enough to know better. I well had a I didn't have a coach actually. I was just working and playing for myself, right? Just having some fun out there. And then as I went uh, to see Lee Cox for the first time, who's still my coach, because I knew that Joe Miller, the world champion at that point of time in 2016, was working with him. I well learned all the stuff and he actually taught me everything that I do nowadays and well taught me that new basis to actually do long drive. Excellent. So six years ago you were about one mid one twenties club head speed, about mid one eighties ball speed. What have yeah. you built up to now? Yeah, so the fastest one I've ever hit with a Volvic AMT was a 231.9. With a top flight ball was a 231 in competition. I, I say that because balls behave completely different, especially in terms of diminishing returns. So my club speed is depends on the system, on a trackman. It's in the mid-high 150s on fast days. On quad, it's in the low to mid 160s on fast days because that's not because they're well, right or wrong, they read at different points, right? They, the quad reads at the dot on the face. The trackman calculates at geometric center of the club, which is two different speeds from the from a physics standpoint. So um, that's why I always say like, hey, this is that and this is that because it's not really comparable. And well, the, the world record right now, I had it for a long time from Kyle Berkshire is uh, 234.4. So I'm trying to get back to that point. But eventually... Well, who cares about a number? Eventually, it's about bringing that ball speed up in competition with good launch and good spin and hit it in the grid. And that's what I did in Salt Lake City, Utah last year. That was the 231 ball because that was 1,800 spin and 13.2 launch and was 439 in the grid, right right down the middle. And that's what I want to want to be at. And, I mean, I was doing a lot. I was doing a lot of strength training. I was a lot of speed training, a lot of the stuff that we're probably talking about on this, this pod. But one thing up front, in competition, everything is different. Because once the adrenaline kicks in, it's a completely different state and a completely different speed. And that's something I had to learn. And that's something I had to learn to be comfortable with. Because in competition, as most golfers know as well, everything is different. It's not the driving range. It's a competition. Yeah. So you've gained approximately 30 miles per hour of club head speed since you started training for long drive. Have you struggled with any injuries during this time frame and putting in so much time and effort? I mean, I have my little aches here and there, but nothing substantial. So, I mean, I'm, I have a really good physio that I see once a week and he's taking or she's taking care of all my back stuff. And I had a bit, a couple issues with my left wrist, to be very honest, at this point. But that was not because I was hitting too many drivers. It was actually I had to learn, as I'm practicing a lot of irons as well, especially for technique. And I have my, I'm fortunate enough to have my own indoor place in the meanwhile that I set up in the middle of nowhere close to Munich in an old building. It started with an archery net, and now it's a full build-out sim. And I built everything myself. And that mat I, I was using back in the days was a very cushioned mat, a very thick mat. You could actually put a tee in to actually, well, tee, tee up a ball. And hitting irons off that mat, I realized it's not the best for my wrist because my angle of attack with a seven iron, for example, is like six to eight down. 
And when you hit that ball with like 125 to 130 miles an hour club speed and you're being like decelerated like that every single swing, it, it kind of tears up your wrist or my wrist at least. That's what I figured. And then I changed mats. Now I have a very hard flat mat, the cheapest one possible that I use for irons. And then I have a different one for drivers. Brilliant. So very high swing speeds are a combination of intent, technique, and physical capabilities. I know yep. the answer will be both, but how much of your improvement do you think has come down to technique versus getting stronger and more powerful? Oh, it's more its more technique. It's a lot more technique. It's like, I would say it's 70-30, if not 80-20, something in that range. But at the same time, my mechanical changes, everything I did, like longer backswing, for example, more hand path length down, like all the linear work I was improving with my coach, all the power that I'm using from the ground up, like all the ground reaction forces that I've been improving, the vertical thrust and the downswing and all of that has a limit at some point for the body, for my body at least. So... I, I feel like with all these mechanical changes, I probably would have made it up to maybe high 140s, maybe low 150s club speed. And the rest is actually the capability of the body because your body has allowed you to, to swing this, this fast. And if your body feels like you're going to hurt yourself, it's not going to allow you. So being strong and actually being resilient is very, very important, not only for a health standpoint, but also for, well, the fast swing, even if it's not well, let's call it the reason to swing fast or faster, but the baseline to actually make it there. Yeah, and of course, muscles are what are producing forces too. So it gets to a point where if you want to produce yeah. more force, it has to come from muscle contraction, basically. So a point or a question I'd like to bring up on that, because I think that might be that breakdown you gave of uh, – 70-30 or 80-20 might be a little bit different to what a lot of people were expecting. Do you think that may be due to the fact that you'd already done pretty high-level physical training for your basketball and you'd already built pretty good strength and explosiveness before you yeah. started on long drive compared to if you'd come into it you know, with a much lower training background, like maybe a lot of the people listening to the podcast who are you know, regular, regular people, you know, maybe middle-aged, and haven't done a you know huge amount of training for explosiveness already. Oh, absolutely. So when I look at, at the average guy, he's benefiting way more from strength training than I did. Because when I look at pictures from 2015, 2016, I was actually following a bodybuilding type of routine that I had, right? Because I want to look good. I was young, right? I feel like I still am. I'm 30 right now. But back in the days, it was even more important. And I was playing basketball. So when I look at those pictures, I was, I wouldn't say way leaner, but leaner. I wouldn't necessarily say stronger, but well, uh, thicker, right? Uh, than, than I am right now, because my focus was a little different. My training focus was a little different. And that at the same time, that means I had a fairly good basis to start. And the training that I do now is still 80% of what I did back in the days when I was playing basketball because it's very similar. It's all explosive moves. It's compound moves. And I adapted stuff here and there, added a bit of rotational elements here and there. But the idea of it is pretty much the same. And that's why I would say 
the my my training hasn't really um helped me that much over the last five years than it would help the average guy who's never been to a gym. Absolutely. That doesn't mean that it's not important. No, it's absolutely is important. It's essential. But well, I, I couldn't really well benefit from the newbie gains that a, a new guy that's never seen a gym from the inside has. Yeah. So if you compare, let's say, world-class long drive mechanics to world-class physical capabilities for long drive, you were much higher up the ladder on the physical capabilities side because you'd already been training for an explosive sport versus you were very raw and newbie to the mechanics stuff. So there was way, way more potential gains there. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. And the mechanics, I mean, eventually, it's also about squaring the face, right? And, well, when you're getting stronger, that's the speed side of things. And that's really the, I would call it the tough part, the part that you got to put more work in to actually, well, get get a lot better and faster at the same time. So speed training over the course of, let's say, four to six weeks can show some tremendous gains, but that's four to six weeks. And when you want to hit it straight and you have these like two to three screws that a good coach can, uh, well, manipulate with you to hit the ball straight because it's a tiny wrist movement or whatever, that can potentially take five minutes, right? So to, to fix that ball go straight. So actually getting faster and getting stronger requires a lot more work to be put in and a lot more dedication and consistency compared to hitting the ball straight. Yeah, the mechanics, I guess, too, are maybe a little bit more challenging in terms of the actual underpinning knowledge. Like if you look at how complex a movement a typical long drive swing is, there's so much nuance in it in terms of the intricate movements Whereas training for strength and power and speed, I'm not saying that there's no nuance or science in it. There obviously is, but there's no way of escaping the really, really, really hard work. Whereas the mechanic stuff is a bit more knowledge and it can be practiced in a way, I guess, that's basically not as stressful. It doesn't require as much energy. It's it's, it's much more skill-based than than basically upgrading your your physical capabilities with, with a huge workload and effort. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's a lot of skill in the squad too. There's a lot of skill involved to make the right motion, right? To make that emotion as efficient as possible. But as you said, there's a lot more moving parts, especially in the long drive swing. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So something I actually, I don't really know about, I, I should have asked you before, but can you give us like a kind of breakdown on say your physical profile? What height are you? Maybe what weight were you before you started, um, you know, concentrating on long drive? What weight are you now? And then if you have any kind of general strength and power level numbers, maybe things like vertical jump or squat or deadlift or bench press or pull up one rep max. Or I know these things aren't by any means a perfect correlate to swing speed, but give people a general idea of, well, this guy's swinging close to 160 miles per hour. What type of strength yeah. levels is he now? And what type of strength levels was he, you know, before okay so um let's start with a height so i'm i'm six four that's that should be 194 i just learned all these imperial terms like a couple in the last couple months because i figured the americans don't really know what i what i mean when i say 194 right so yeah. i'm 194 six four 
I weigh 108 kilos, which is about 238, like 240-ish around that uh, weight. It changes a lot throughout the season. So my weight usually till the World Championship drops by six to eight pounds. So I'm usually my lightest when I'm at the World Championship because just of the of the training, of the traveling, of the of everything that I do throughout the season. And I actually try to, well, build up that buffer in the winter to actually use that throughout the season to be the fastest I can in, in September, October. Um, then, sorry, go ahead. Keep going. No, go ahead. Ask your no, question. So, I, I, sorry. So I was just going to say, and maybe a reason why you're heavier in the winter is potentially more strength training, a higher volume of lifting which then yes. a little bit comes out as you're trying to peak speed for your tournament, for your big tournament. Yes, absolutely, because there's a lot of recovery involved as well. Towards the end, it's only like a, let's call it a matter of how, how quickly your nervous system and your muscles are firing eventually, right? That's what it's about. So the training changes a little bit. There's not as much CNS fatiguing stuff involved because I want to utilize all of that to swing, so, and during the winter, I do a lot of eccentric stuff as well. I work a lot with flywheels. I go like super hard on my, on my body because it doesn't matter as much if I'm swinging it like, let's say 148 or 152 the next day, because I'm working on mechanics anyways. So yeah, that's, that's how I do it. Then in terms of vertical, I don't really know because there's so many different ways of uh, doing a vertical jump. So the last time I was testing it, when I was just doing a raw jump up with my uh, with a sensor, I don't even know how, how it's called anymore. I do have it in my golf bag, but I could measure the jump height in my um, on, at my ankle. So I, I put the sensor at my ankle. That was 87 centimeters. So that was, I don't know if that's a lot or not, but I measured it once because, well, I, I do a lot of jumps. Yes. So I do a lot of plyometric stuff. I do a lot of depth jumps. I do have the plyo boxes at my golf cave back in Munich, how I call it. But, um, well, if I had to give you a number, that's, that must that's be tough to, tough to tell. I know it's divided by 2.54. That's got to be over 30 inches, I'm guessing, uh, which for somebody your size, for your weight, that's that's a very, very impressive power output. Because that's something to yeah. consider for jumping off the ground is obviously you have to overcome your body mass. So if, if you're getting up to 87 centimeters with 108 kilos body weight, like that's a huge power power level. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't really. I don't really know because I've never done any comparisons or whatnot. I, I know all my numbers and comparisons with my long drive swing, obviously. But I just do well. I, I jump as hard as I can, right, and try to get up there. And um, then when I look at like, I, I never do run one rep maxes. Very rare. So I, I don't really know. So I, I know that when I look at kilos, I don't really know in pounds, but a, a deadlift, I can do a five, five times five deadlift at 190 kilos. I uh, squat 140, five times five. Um, bench press 120. What else? Don't know shoulder press, no idea. Pull-ups, well, I, I can do like, whatever 10 with my body weight explosively i rarely add weight um because i i just use other well 
you do ways probably of, row, uh, rows and stuff like I, that. I, head yeah, I, I row. Yeah, I row. I, I do pull downs. I, I basically what I do when I when I look at I people always always ask me about these numbers, but actually what I do when I when I work out, I just try to cover all the angles and I just try to cover all the compound moves in a, in an explosive way. So that's what I try to do. It varies a little bit throughout the season in terms of volume, but um, well, I'm I'm not really. Uh, trying to chase that one rep max PR yep. because it's just there's so much risk involved uh, in well and on the other hand what's the the huge benefit hundred percent yeah yeah so that's that's why I'm I'm just I've seen too many guys getting injured doing this and that's why I try to go hard but at the same time limit the well injury risk to a level that I feel comfortable with. No, that's brilliant. And that, I think, does give us a good insight. Like, so 6'4", 108 kilos slash uh, like 235, 240 pounds, a very high strength level, 190 kg deadlift, 120 kg bench for five sets of five reps. I just calculated your vertical jump uh, from 87 centimeters. It's 34 inches, which at your body weight is is nuts like that's that's a huge power output so it, it kind of adds up it's it's not uh i don't think surprising to anyone but the fastest swingers in the world they have very very favorable body shapes and sizes for producing a lot of force they're big and strong and then they also go really really in depth onto the mechanics that are favorable for speed production it's a combination of everything coming together that allows basically 150 plus club head speeds to be attained. Yeah, I, I mean, throughout my my career, when I look back at it, it's it's been so funny because in the very beginning, it's always been about club speed, club speed, club speed, right? Everybody wanted to break 150, like let's say three, four years ago. That was the big number. And where we are right now is, I would guess there's 20 guys in the world in the meanwhile that break 150 whenever they want to. So a lot changed. And I, I believe the knowledge in the sport got a lot more, more people are following the right principles, but also equipment changed a little bit. Shafts didn't necessarily get longer. We're still at 48 inches, which actually shorter than back in the days. They, these guys went up to, to 50 inches up the wall though. So that's actually been 48 and a half. But we're we're sticking to to the USGA rules, so that's forty eight. I know there's this local rule for forty six, and I I personally would be happy about implementing forty six. But well, that's up to discussion. But um, the, uh, people realized club fitting and everything we do in terms of speed, so ever do everything velocity based has no rules. So when I'm looking at shafts, for example, I see people out there that swing their like 5X stiff shafts that are super stiff that I can barely move. But me, for example, and a couple other guys swing a shaft that is between a regular and a stiff, but we can load and unload it at the right time. And also as we do long drive, it's not too much about the forgiveness. So it's not too much about is that bad ball still in the first cut or is it in the rough? right and well a ball in long drive when you miss hit it and it's one yard ob 
it's exactly the same score compared to a ball that goes 100 yards OB. That's why we can, well, use a little more risk there and actually, well, trade that, well, let that forgiveness we don't have for more speed. And now I see people swing 153, 155, 156. And it's not only Kyle and myself. There's a bunch of guys out there. There's Ryan Dragnall. There's Colton Casto. There's Justin James, obviously. He's been around for a long time. He swings these, like, super stiff shafts and is, like, low 150s on a track, man, which is insane. And it's it's like everything's evolving as, well, we find out more about the sport. And at the same time, there's still so many unknowns. So I'm I'm trying to figure this stuff out on a, on a daily basis, and I'm always faced with questions that I have that I don't have an answer to. Like just just an example, when I look at balls, like the competition balls we hit at the moment, are the top flight bombs, which is a very very cheap ball. It's like a fifty forty to fifty cent ball that was implemented in 2020 and was supposed to be the world long drive ball which was the the long drive brand of the Golf Channel, which is no more, is set to on hold right now, whatever. That's a completely different story. But that ball shows a little slower speeds compared to um, the ball we had before. But what people don't know, especially when you hit in the simulator a lot, it's actually a lot about ballistics. So how far is that ball actually going down range? And that probably has to do with a dimple pattern, with the cover material, with a lot of different things. And uh, we, we don't really know about. So I, I just figure when I put down, drop down my quad or trackman or whatever launch monitor, and I see the numbers for a top flight bomb compared to a Chrome Soft XLS, to a Titleist Left Dash Pro V1, to whatever different ball, I see that even the bad hits on the premium balls that I was mentioning go longer than the top flight bomb. It's very, very interesting. These kinds of things, these like nerdy equipment types of topics are a huge deal in the long drive world. And this is just one example of what we're trying to figure out. The next thing like um, fitness or like physique wise would be taper period before an event. Like how, how do you do that? How do you prepare for a four-day event when you have to swing every single day as hard as you can compared to a one-day event with a lunch break at 12 o'clock? How do you warm up again? Uh, do, you, do you just keep swinging? What, what, what do you do? And how do you find out by trying, right? And I then sometimes it works, but was that due to what you've done or was it luck or did you have a good day or did you just like flow that day? What, what, what are the variables? And that's what I try to figure out. And all of that without putting too much thought into all of this, because eventually you have to have to hit the golf ball, right? <laughs> but you want to, want to be prepared the best way you can. That's what I feel like is going to change the game entirely throughout the next five to 10 years. Because we're going to find out so much more. And for our individual bodies, but also like general stuff that people will implement. When I only look, as I said before, when I look at the last three to five years, so much has changed. People got so much faster. It's been like a, I would call it a 10% leap. And that's that's insane at that level of play. And that's why I feel like there's so much more to find out. And the level of play will even increase. Yeah, I think maybe too, like long drive is getting a little bit more popular. So maybe yeah. kind of basically 
bigger and, and more talented athletes will be shifting over maybe you know who have retired from you know maybe college sports they played or something like that and they're like man long drive is something that i, I wouldn't mind taking up you know and all of a sudden you have these beasts who are who are yeah. learning how to swing a golf club you know and they're getting it's up incredible into really high speeds it's, pretty quickly it's so incredible we see new faces at every single event and they're already up there because they have a baseball background cricket background golf background whatever and they're beasts as you said and they're they're competitive it's and there's so much so many more people out there i guarantee you that don't even know how good they are because they don't know their ball speeds they've never measured it they don't even know what ball speed is and once they figure it out once they know it's going to get very 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 dangerous that's one thing about the sport itself but then the transfer to golf and realizing that all the stuff we do and like the little snippets you see online like me yelling at a golf ball me grunting or whatever is just a tiny part of the speed training we do as barbaric as it might seem it's just a part of the speed training and that's that's not how i play golf that's a drill or a training method that i use to get faster that is absolutely applicable to golf and actually making that transfer. And I mean, obviously, one guy that showed how, well, that's possible, especially in such a short time frame, is Bryson DeChambeau, eventually. We've seen it. He won a major championship following all of these principles. So if you really want to, and you push through it, and you do not freak out once you've done your first speed session at the driving range, which has been a lot of fun. But once you see, as a golf pro, I get it. Once you see a couple erratic ball fights, well, you see your bank account fade away in front of your eyes. And you're like, oh, no, I can't, I can't do this. I can't play like this, right? Okay, let's go putting. And I mean, um, yeah, I, I get it. I absolutely get it. But if it's done the right way, with the right um, attitude, this is absolutely applicable for golf. And I see college golfers in the next five to ten, ten years come out and – what the 130 is going to be the new 120 people are going to smash more 190 ball speed balls and at the same time all of that is going to push manufacturers to to a point that they have to build equipment that's that's right or better for these speeds and that's gonna well increase the competition in that field again and all of the above so i i see it evolve at all these different places and that well goes hand in hand with a with a strength training yeah, that's a good point there. It's actually going to prompt me to skip ahead a couple of questions. You touched on um, the transfer from long drive training to golf. Like that's why I'm interested in long drive mainly. Like I think swinging fast is, you know, really interesting and really cool. But mainly the reason I'm I'm studying it and talking to people like you is I want to pick up what I can from these people to help me and help golfers that I work with get better at golf. Like obviously you know, there's loads of information out there about how distance helps your your scoring basically for you so you can swing a driver let's let's just say 155 if you're going max out or close to 160 depending on the machine that you're using and you're also a good golfer if let's just say if you decided that tomorrow you're going to focus on having as good a golf season as you can for the next year what type of speeds do you think that you would dial your driver back to to give you the best chance of maximizing your on-course performance? Let's say your strokes gained off the tee. 
probably around 140. I would try to find a smoothie that is around 140, so I can be like low 200s of ball speed around that in in that area. At the same time, I would probably hit a lot of irons and. Well, that's the driver's speed, but what I'm not practicing practicing at all right now is any shots between 130 to 50 yards because that's getting so tough when you don't practice it because for me, it's all the same club. And I really had to find my gapping down there. I don't do it at the moment because there's no point in doing it and there's it, it takes a lot of time and effort to actually make that work. And while I don't make money doing that, I make money smashing golf balls. So I'd rather go practice smash golf balls, right? But um, yeah, that's that's the tough part. And at the same time, these guys out there at the PGA Tour, when it comes down to putting especially because it's always like, yeah, you can drive a show, put for dough and all that stuff. And the wedge game, these guys on tour, they're out there for a reason. And that reason is mostly they're very already very, very good at this. When you really suck at putting, when you really suck at short game, you won't be out there. So there's there's no point in like being afraid of that lacking for a PGA Tour player. But I'm not a PGA Tour player. So, well, I, I do not practice that stuff down there. So I would probably have to put a lot more time into that uh, compared to the driver speeds. Because when I'm... When I'm smoothing it, so also in, in competition, for example, I'm not worried about my, my speeds. I'm just worried about my launch. And I would probably do exactly the same when I'm at the golf course. I would only be worried about um, hitting my shot shape or hitting the ball wherever I want to. The speeds will be there by, by, by itself because I've been practicing it. So I build up the speed reserve by doing these barbaric sessions to actually be the fastest I can when I max out, but that's not how I play golf. I probably play like, it, it feels like a smoothie, normal smoothie, 80% shot, then maybe, which is eventually a 94% shot or something like that. But it's still so much faster compared to, well, me four or five years ago, right? When I was one one twenty five. So, but it feels the same, if not even less compared to back in the days. And that's, well, the speed reserve that I'd build up. But yeah, if, if I really had to, well, be good at golf, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the driving that I would be focusing on. But that's because I, I've been driving the golf ball for the last four years. <laughs> every exactly. Single day. So you just mentioned something twice that I was going to ask next. You said the speed reserve you've built up. Can you talk about that concept and how it might help, let's just say, the club golfer, you know, who's a reasonably proficient player, let's say a, a 10 handicapper. So, you know, he might be swinging like 100 miles an hour on the course or probably even less, probably like 95 miles an hour on the course. Let's say right now when he swings as fast as he can, you know, on a range or in a simulator, he can get like 102. Can you tell us what the speed reserve is and why that might help him with getting better at golf? Okay, let's call it perceived speed. So when I swing a golf club, um, and I had to call a number on that particular day without seeing the number in the first place. So I I just, well, tee, tee up a ball and, and swing it. I couldn't tell you that day if I swung it 138 or 147. It feels exactly the same. So what I want to make clear first is I cannot feel speed. 
I can only feel how fast I hit it or how hard, how hard I get hit at it that particular day. So when I have a baseline, let's say I know, okay, my first couple of swings were 150. Now I try to hit one 154. Then I kind of can make that happen. But if I don't have an idea about the speed, I cannot feel the speed. So the idea, the principle about the speed reserve is I want you to swing exactly the same perceived speed on course out there, but we want to increase it without you feeling it. So I'm trying to approach this whole principle from the other side right now, because how you train this is I do a lot of speed work for, let's say, 40 to 100 balls, depends on the speed session, to swing the fastest I can, completely regardless of where the ball is going. I mainly do this indoors, hitting into a screen without the tracer turned on. So I don't see where the ball is going. And I'm only showing the one or two parameters of club speed and ball speed, club speed or ball speed, sometimes even only club speed, just to focus on hitting it as fast as I can. Do I want to play like this out on course? No. But the reason for this is it builds up the speed reserve by actually, when you think of the speed reserve as well, a pillar, right? And you increase the max up here, everything is moving up. So if you increase your maximum speed, your lowest speed will move up too, and so will your average speed. So that means eventually when you do this and practice maxing out as much as possible in these sessions, at some point you will be out on course. And if I would put down a trackman behind you on a seven iron into the green from whatever distance out, we would probably see a speed increase by a couple miles because we pushed up your speed reserve and that also pushed up your average speed. So that means we get your entire bag longer by maxing out with driver without even realizing it, perceiving the same speed out on course. And that's actually what it's all about because I don't want, when I'm playing, I don't want to like crank it out on course. That's not the point. These like barbaric type of speed training methods are to increase the speed reserve and to be fast without actually feeling it. That's yeah, what it's that, all about. That, that makes perfect sense. And like, I, I see the exact same thing too with the speed session basically screenshots or, or sheets that the PGA Tour players I work with fill out in their speed training. I can see those speeds when they're usually on the range, hitting balls as hard as they can. They usually have still, um, especially when they're in in tournaments, like they might be doing this on a, on a Tuesday and they might be playing on a Thursday. So they still have definitely regard for where the ball goes, but not as much as basically like teeing off in an event. But it's very interesting looking at those speeds versus their speeds from ShotLink, which are the recorded on the tee box in the tournament. And you can def like definitely see that for most players, like I'd say that there's roughly, this, this is give or take based on the player, but I would say like about a five mile per hour difference in club head speed, roughly. Some players it might be eight, some players it might be only three. But kind of the concept is that if we can get them swinging faster in their range sessions where they're going as hard as they can without trying when they go out on the course and they have the same level of intent they had six months ago when they're just picking out a tree in the distance as their target and hitting it at that, that speed will also be higher. So they're using, yeah. like you said, their training to get their basically their, their speed reprogrammed, get it higher. 
And now when they're trying the same effort they were previously, it's just moving faster. Their distance is up and hopefully there's not much of a decrease in accuracy at all. And yeah, it's def- definitely something that I've seen being true. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Um, in terms of balancing physical training, technique work, and let's say max out speed in terms of a training week, I understand there'll be overlap between them, but how do you balance that maybe, let's say, in the off season when there's no tournaments coming up and then how that shifts, you know, maybe the last three, four weeks before a huge tournament. Yeah. So one thing I definitely do is I do a lot more speed training um, in, well, the last, let's say six weeks before an event. So actually to ramp up the speed and during the winter, I mostly work on some mechanical things that also that, that are the baseline to speed. Yes, also, a lot of those things are supposed to increase speed or increase efficiency, make me, well, hit faster with less effort and all of that. What means for me, the, the more effortless my swing is, the more reps I can put in. Is that simple? Because my body doesn't have to work that hard. Or that's that's what it's all about for me. Because the more reps I can put in, the better I will get. And obviously, well, there's this like face squaring aspect too. Obviously, I want to hit it straight. I want to hit my shot shapes. I want to be as versatile as possible. So we're facing different conditions too. Sometimes waiting into wind, waiting downwind, crosswind, soft grits, hard grits, all of that. So I got to be capable of hitting all these different shots with different launch angles, different spins, different spin axes, and so on. So it's a huge, huge um, aspect of the game. And it's mostly... that deciding factor who's going to win that event so people that only have this one shot will only be good at like certain conditions and i try to be as versatile as possible so i can adapt to whatever and uh, win every single event of them right and that's what I'm, i'm not there yet but i try to get closer every single day and especially winter right so that's that's the difference of the let's call it the approach of my training but um in the winter there's there's so much overlap as you said also in terms of training methods because most of the time the stuff that i do is not only good for one thing but uh, well ideally i try to tackle multiple things with like let's call it call it one drill or whatever yeah for for example when i'm um what i absolutely love is impact drills especially with the tour tempo stuff like these face plates and the speedball that has velcro on it so the the face plate actually sticks to the velcro and then adds a little resistance um throughout the the rest of the swing so i love doing those because the just because of the fact that the impact plate is so large you can't miss it so you're you're absolutely not worried about making good impact whatsoever. You you smash it anyways because it's so large. And doing that allows me to completely focus on a speed element, for example, only, or a mechanical element only that's completely independent of impact. So I try to separate those two, and that's how I usually start. And that's how I would um, encourage amateurs to start as well, like completely separating from making good impact and increasing speed in the first place or making mechanical changes or whatever and then dial it back in because that's how how my body at least and i've seen it with multiple people learn the quickest and um 
Yeah, then, I mean, all, all the lifting that I do, as I said, the, the rep range and the volume is a little higher in the winter. And the closer I get to the competition, the usually heavier and uh, lower the volume is getting anyways. So that means I try to get more explosive the closer I get to um, the tournament or whenever I want to peak. And also that goes along with the speed training. That involves speed sticks. I'm using the raw speed sticks because it's one stick and I can just travel with it. It's a lot more convenient, but the principle itself is exactly the same. It's an overspeed and overload principle. Whatever you swing, just swing it. And the most important bit is swing it as fast as you can. And then impact drills that I really like. And then these intense sessions that are very important. And that goes hand in hand with priming that I either do the day before, actually before hitting with a bit of a break in between. And then my rule of thumb for training sessions is whenever I lift before a hitting session or swing session, it's more of an activation kind of workout i'm not going all out at all because i want to prime my body to actually swing the fastest i can because when i go all out and i kill my legs for example in a very heavy squat session that i uh, well with high volume i don't want to swing after that because it's gonna I, my legs are gonna be done and I'm, I'll, I'll be slow so I, I figured that fairly quick and when I want to do these sessions, or especially during the winter, that I want to go closer to that all-out all, all out point, I don't do it a lot, but sometimes I do it. I definitely do it after hitting or on a day I don't hit. So that's what it's all about. And I've, I've made the experience when it comes down to muscle soreness that it does not affect my swing or speed at all. It only feels different. It's so weird. Like in the beginning, when I look at my numbers and how it evolved, especially when I look at ball speed, I had my fastest sessions when I expected it the least. Like, for example, after a long flight, I hit my world record ball after a an eight-hour flight just the, the week before uh, COVID hit. And um, I kind of had a forced well rest period of like 24 hours or a little bit more even and then hit the hit the record and i felt terrible i was jet lagged i i sat on a plane for for eight hours as i said and i was stressed out anyways because the borders were about to shut and my the season was fading away and all of that so that's been very interesting and then there's other days when i wake up and i'm like yeah, today's the day let's go i feel it and then I'm actually five miles an hour slower at my at my peak. It's it happens. It's it's so weird that I I can't really feel it because that's probably relating back to how ready my CNS is and how much the CNS and the muscles are actually firing. And that in my experience has nothing to do with the perceived muscle soreness. It's two different things. Just to be clear here, you're saying that that happens from time to time rather than happening all the time. Like mo most of the time. Oh, yeah. If, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's, it's not like I try to feel terrible. And yeah, yeah, yeah. At it. No, 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 no. It's just, it's just the observation. Because I, as I said, I'm trying to figure this out myself, right? There's days that I feel perfect and I'm fast. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah. But um, I, I don't try to tear myself up to then yeah, be yeah. fast. You don't, no, you don't fly not. for eight hours every time before yeah, no, no, a no, no, session. No, 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 no. no. All, all I, I try to make the point that, it's there's there's something more to it 
that's that's what I'm trying to say. Like, um, there's something that we can't really feel that is responsible for speed creation or whatever. Oh, definitely a part of it. So I haven't discovered all the pieces of the puzzle yet. And I'm, I've been doing this for five years. And, well, sometimes, well, it, it works. And sometimes there's something that's that's off. And, well, that's what we see in golf, too. If that wouldn't be the case, I mean, right now, Scotty Scheffler is basically winning everything. But, every, I mean, the same person would win every single event if he had figured it out, right? Or she had figured it out. So there's there's this these factors that nobody can really, well, name. I guess that are responsible for something that's happening in the body. Might it be um, chemically or mentally a huge aspect, right? And all of the above. So all I'm all I'm trying to say is, it's not like you're following a recipe and you have a guaranteed success. No, but the recipe is definitely getting you closer to that point. But in golf, there's no guarantees for anything. Yeah, there's no manual you can just follow. This is what you should do Monday through Sunday and you'll gain X amount. Like there's going to be yes. very strange periods where things feel great, periods where things feel terrible. And then obviously we all have such different makeups in terms of our sporting background, our training background, and just our lifestyles in general, how much sleep we get, the things we yeah. tend to eat and that sort of thing. Honing in on this speed training side of things a little bit more because – Kind of in in my opinion or my experience, like I have no issue finding really good material on training for, let's say, power and strength or size from a gym side of things. Um, and like by talking to, say, good golf instructors, I've never really had an issue finding good material for the types of mechanics that are important for speed. Like I've had Sasho on the show a couple of times, Lee Cox, Steve Furlonger, like those guys have very good information. And I find that it's when you combine that and the, the high quality gym training, you have a, you have a decent piece of the puzzle for sure, but something in like, I'd say the research. And even just, if you're looking for books and other types of resources, there's not really that much good material about, say, volume for actual speed training. And what I mean by that is, like, if I ask even just, say, like, the average gym goer, talk to me about sets and reps for gaining size versus gaining strength, right? they, they might have a decent idea. But if you ask someone who's interested in gaining clubhead speed, how many balls should you hit in this session at max speed? Some will tell you 10. Some might say 100. Some might say do it every day. Some might do it once a week. So, and I just can't find like good resources, say published. I've, I've learned from talking to people like you and asking other people who are really fast and even looking into like other sports, like track and field throwers and looking some of the volumes they do of med ball throws and things like that. So kind of going a long way around there, but can you give us a little bit more insight into when you're doing your speed sessions, what might be a typical frequency and how many balls you, you might hit? Okay. It, so first things first, it varies. Uh, as I said before, in the winter, it's not too much about the speed sessions. It's more about the mechanics. And I, I still do speed sessions, but only like, let's say, once every seven to ten days. So just to to maintain the speed. But when I really try to push for a certain record or try to be as fast as I can, it's every third day, roughly. 
So in between, I try to get two days of recovery. That doesn't mean that I'm not swinging, but I'm focusing on something different. And uh, I've, I've seen me being the fastest when I had two complete days off before. So at some point, I try to bring that in as well to, well, get that little extra push to, to be the fastest I can. But in terms of volume of a, well, of one session, I go by this. So I figured, um, and in, in it's, it's different at what kind of level you are. So in the very beginning, I've made the experience that the more balls I hit, even up to like 150 drivers, I got faster and faster and faster throughout the session. And for me, it never made sense because when I look at like javelin throwers, hammer throwers or whatever, they wouldn't be there longest or fast or whatever towards the end of such a crazy session, right? But golf seems to be different. The motion seems to be different. And I've talked to a few guys and uh, Chris Beersley was one of, one of the guys and I was asking him like, hey, do you have any idea how this could come about or what the science might be behind it? And he said, like, yeah, it's actually kind of logical because you're simply by um, deliberately practicing, and that's what you do when you have a launch monitor that's showing you the numbers, so you get instant feedback for every single swing that you do. Um, you improve in coordination simply by doing it and by seeing the numbers and seeing what you do, feeling what you do, and you're basically improving mechanically or in coordination to get faster. Yeah. And then I've made the experience as I've been uh, fairly advanced at some point that I've seen my speeds drop fairly early after like 50 to 60 swings. So before it's been 150. So after 50 to 60 swings, I've seen my first speed drop. And before that, it was very effortless. And I put up like super crazy speeds. Then I have seen my first speed drop. And then sometimes I try to push, even try to push through it and get back up again. Sometimes I call it a session as soon as my first speed drops to just, well, okay, that's fine. I'm hitting again in like uh, two days. So let's call it a day from here. But um, he told me like this type of, well, observation might be related to that super high fast twitch muscle fiber that's been built up over the last four years is fast in the very beginning but is fatiguing fairly quickly so i'm not benefiting as much anymore from that improved coordination because my coordination is fairly good already but that super fast twitch muscle fiber has been firing in the very beginning but is then done Right? That's that's how he kind of explained the science behind it. And it made sense because I've been experiencing that a lot. But then actually what I, what I try to uh, practice for, especially when it comes down to the world championship in the very end of the season, is we're hitting over four days. So how do you do that? It's four days of super fast and long hitting. So some, And, and you want to be the fastest towards the end because th that's when it comes down to the last like – for two players and you you have to be fast to actually win and obviously when i go there I want and you to might win. be tired oh yes so so how about that how do you prime for that so the closer i get to that the more i try to simulate these weeks and hit like four days in a row and try to amp it up throughout the the week or the four days to be the fastest on the last day and that's the difference between like let's say 
practice, a normal practice and training and preparation for a certain event. So, um, yeah, I've, I've observed it all, but I, I've never really understood it. Now that, that thing with like the coordination and the, um, fast, super fast twitch muscle fiber makes sense to me. But that's probably until I discover the next weird thing. And then I'm, again, I'm like, what is actually going on? So the, the principles itself, like all the training principles that I've, I've been doing, helped a lot to get to this point. But I don't see this being the end. I, I don't see 234 ball speed or whatever, the, the peak that we can get to. I see 237, 238, 240 eventually. It obviously comes down to the equipment too. Balls need to be fast. Club heads need to withstand all of that stuff that we do and be fast at the same time. Shaft kicking, like all the equipment parts and all of that. But there's something to it that one or two or a couple persons might find out for themselves then do it and get even faster. So the principle already got us to that point, all the principles that I mentioned. But, well, there's there's more. There's there's more to be found out, and I can't wait to, to find out. And just to, to, I guess, summarize those principles, and you can go off here, tell me if I'm mistaken, but if people are really interested in, yeah, it will be really fun to try and push my speed up, whether it's for long drive or they want to see if they can get way better at golf. Also, it's Sweet. a lot of fun doing these it's, sessions. It's very, very fun. Very <laughs> it's very fun. Yeah. Until, until your driver cracks. Yeah, uh, it happens. Well, yeah, that's all right. You get it, you, most of the companies send out a free replacement now anyway. And it's a trophy eventually, yeah. <laughs> right? It's kind of a trophy. Yeah. So would you say swing mechanics, max speed training, and physical capabilities like strength and explosiveness? Is that the kind of big boxes that people need to be checking, would you say? Yes, and tracking all of that. So especially when it comes down to swing training, definitely track your club head speed and, if possible, ball speed. Get on a launch monitor every three days or whatever. Whenever you do such a speed session, definitely track it. Whatever device you use, you can use a PRGR in the very beginning. That's perfectly fine. It works up to, like let's say, 180-ish ball speed. It works fairly well. But stay within the same system when you track these. Don't compare those numbers to quad or trackman or whatever. Just one example I mentioned in the very beginning, club speed on trackman and quad is measured differently. It, it, it's not comparable. It doesn't mean one is right or wrong. It's just different. So don't compare the two. Stay within your system yeah. and then track it. Because if you don't track it, you'll never know. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, where can people find out more about you? Do you offer coaching at all? Or I do a little bit. I, I keep it very exclusive at my um, at my golf cave in Munich with my force blades and I have my, my quad and all of that. But it's not like I try to coach for eight, eight hours a day or whatnot. I, I do a couple sessions um, a week and utilize the rest of the time to practice myself. So I, I also... Also, what I try to do is I try to keep it very high end because I am not a PGA um, golf coach, right? I'm I, I I'm not qualified to let's call it that way. I'm not qualified to teach a 45 handicap to make it to 36 because I don't know what I'm doing there. Because all the stuff that I would teach them, I doubt that they would actually be capable of well doing that. It's just a different approach, right? You have to approach it differently, which is a an, a crazy skill. 
uh, don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm not saying this is superior or inferior. It's just different approaches, in my opinion. So I, I love to work with tour professionals, with very good golfers that kind of have good fundamentals that can I can squeeze out the last tiny bit. And that's with the principles that I figured out. That's actually fairly easy to do if you do it the right way. And you see improvements in like one session. I most of the time, um, well, I I get up people people's ball speed within an hour. Most of the time, it's eight plus miles an hour ball speed increases. It's it's not very rare because applying these principles is kind of simple, and people have never done it before. So newbie gains are there most of the time. So I do that, but most of the of my time I actually spend practicing for myself, obviously, but I share a lot of it on social media. So um, I'm yeah. posting on Instagram on a daily basis, which is Martin Borkmar. And I just started my YouTube channel a couple months ago where I try to keep it, let's say, a mixture of entertainment and educational content. So every single video of mine has an educational piece, definitely. But at the same time, I mean, I'm, I'm hitting golf balls through TV screens and all of that. And or I, I try to I had these this old tailor made R580 driver, which is a high core driver from back in the days. So it's been my driver when I was like 14 years old. So that's been high core. And I was uh, trying to give it a rip and see how many tries it would take me to actually smash or crack the club face. And well, at the same time, during that video, which is a kind of a Bavarian session, I try to educate people what's actually happening. So this is the core. This is the limitations we have, blah, 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 and all of that. And let's see if, if I can crack it. And well, if you want to see it, watch the video. It's been, yeah. it's been a fairly, it's been a fairly fun one. Yeah. So if you. Core is the think? spring like core is the spring like yeah. effect that became illegal in like the early two thousands or something like that. Exactly, and also what I didn't mention before is all the equipment we use is USJ approved, so we don't use high CT drivers or whatever. Uh, people, most people think we're using like rocket drivers or whatever, but it's actually the opposite because if we would hit a high core driver, it would crack in two swings because the club the the face itself is just too thin. So Perfect. it's it's actually it's actually the opposite. Mike, thank you. Thank you so much for having yeah, me. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Um your Instagram is fantastic. That's kind of how I found out more about you. I'd seen you on TV competing and stuff like that, but your your tips on Instagram are really good. So the handle is at Martin Borgmeyer and Borgmeyer yeah. is B-O-R-G-M-E-I-E-R. That is correct. Perfect. That's great. Martin, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Thanks. I'll, I'll get people to tag you with their speed increases on social media. You'll be, you'll be getting plenty of them, hopefully. I love it. Let's do it. Thanks, Martin.